I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broken in debt and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife, husband or significant other and substantially more than you, which gives you a great life, given the ability to choose your clients, when you work and who for? Or have you attained financial freedom in architecture? If you're in the first two categories, surviving month to month, or facing financial difficulties, how is this affecting your mental health? Are you suffering from depression or even despair? We need to talk about the impact of debt, but also, more importantly, how to get out of debt. And I need you to come forward to make this podcast possible. Welcome to The Brock Architect. You will hear from real architects with very real problems and maybe some will offer some real solutions so that you never become a broke architect please share subscribe and comment to support the channel following the first six episodes i thought i'd pause and remind you the listener what inspired the podcast well The articles I wrote called The Brock Architect were actually inspired by a movie, probably my favourite movie, The Fountainhead, by Anne Rand. Now, Howard Rourke was partly inspired by the great American architect Frank Lloyd Wright. And Howard, like Wright, goes bankrupt when work dries up and they both struggle with debt and they suffer for their art. Now, architects have a long history of struggling with money, and I thought I'd drop this episode into the series. This is the audio from my YouTube videos on the research I carried out in 2021. Part one looks at pay and reward, and part two looks into the culture within the profession and why it needs to change. Thank you. Part one, pay and reward is about finances. We discuss the salary that you can expect to get as a newly qualified architect, and also part one and a part two. Now this follows on from my articles, The Brook Architect. There is a part one and there's a part two, which will feature. And in this video, I'm kind of using the article as a basis for communicating visually what I was kind of talking about and the research and the polls that I did on LinkedIn. So please watch, learn and comment. Uh, these is just my opinion um, and I just hope you get some great value from this. Thank you. Throughout history, architects have played one of the most important roles in society. Designers of places to live, work, play, learn, worship and so much more. Some might even go so far as to say they have been instrumental in creating 
the identifying personality and general mood of individual countries. Now, architects' work can be so outstanding that they can become a catalyst for change. Notably, the architect Frank Gehry creating a destination building for a once rundown industrial city of Bilbao with his design of the, the Guggenheim Museum. So this building transformed Bilbao and put it onto the world stage. The cultural impact was immense, the financial even more so. And many cities followed this example using architects like Norman Foster and Zaha Hadid to use their talent of design to bring value to a place. That's why, understandably, the path to qualifying as an architect is not easy. It can take on average seven to 10 years, sometimes even more. Common challenges that architecture students often encounter are financial, emotional, and physical stress with a culture of long hours in the studio and in a lot of cases, family and friends not being able to offer adequate support simply because they don't understand the nature of the discipline. As a fellow of both the Royal Institute of British Architects, the RIBA, and the Royal Society of Arts, the RSA, I wanted to try and find some answers to these questions. I have a network of over 28,000 followers on LinkedIn, comprising professionals from all walks of life and a unique insider view of chartered architecture. So I felt I was in a, a slightly more advantageous position than most on LinkedIn. So this video aims to explore what the general public think a fair salary for a trainee and a newly qualified architect is and why. It then explores reasons why the salaries can be lower than other professions which take a similar duration of time and dedication to attain. And to explore this subject, I ran several polls on LinkedIn all over a seven day period. And the results are present presented on this video. The first poll posed the question, why do we value lawyers, doctors and engineers more than architects? Four options were offered as a response based on the common themes that I've personally encountered. So options were, don't understand what they do. Architects don't add value. Architects are too expensive. Or lastly, I don't respect architects. Although the poll was viewed well over 19,000 times, only 162 people actually voted. A further 110 independent comments were received. Now the majority who voted were indeed architects and 60% of them chose the don't understand what they do option. I'm sure they think that people don't understand what they do. 16% voted that architects are too expensive and 15% voted that architects don't add value. So it seems from the people who voted that the view is that people believe that the public don't fully understand what architects do. The idea that people don't understand the true value of an architect was bolstered by comments that architects often undercharge for the full value of their services for fear of putting clients off. 
So some comments actually suggested that lobbying the government that design professionals should hold some additional proof of competency following Grenfell to also someone suggesting that architects are not needed anymore as they are also, there's, there's so many uh, millions of designs to choose from like it's some sort of a sweetie selection box. But it wasn't all doom and gloom. The poll seems to have caught the attention of some notable members of the profession. Now in fact, President Alan Jones, he's current Arabia president, he took part in the poll and voted with the majority that people don't seem to understand what architects do. Samita Singer, who ran for president of the RIBA in 2020, directed me towards an article she wrote in 2015 titled, Why Pay an Architect When Anyone Can Design for Free? The article offers some very interesting reasons, citing low fees, too much time spent on the preliminary work, and lack of big projects being a recurring problem which can put even the best architecture firm out of business. Now even in 2015, award-winning Malcolm Fraser Architects fell into liquidation with the loss of 15 staff, with the owner-director Malcolm Fraser stating he could not make his architecture firm pay. It didn't stack up financially. To quote Mr. Fraser, the work we did is beautiful and important. However, we have been unable to make it profitable. Two years earlier, RMJM, one of Scotland's biggest practices, fell into financial difficulties and went into receivership before being rescued. In 2019, ADF, and a Glasgow-based firm was liquidated when several large projects were delayed and it could no longer pay its staff. The liquidator stated, unfortunately, the business cannot be sold as a going concern as it is not viable. Nick Moss, Manchester Practice 6-2, also ran for Arabia president in 2020. And he stated in an article in the magazine Building Design, that he was standing out of frustration and fear that architects had no future if the marginalization of the profession was not addressed. His focus was on resolving the issues around procurement. One point of note is that he stated, it's becoming harder and harder to make the business model work. So, the public generally understand what doctors and lawyers do, but as one comment suggested, I received, these professions are based on fear, death and litigation, and a view that these professions are a necessity, whilst architecture is seen as a luxury. This brings us to the second poll, what is the one main reason you are pursuing becoming a chartered architect? I posed this question so I could understand the main reason people are drawn to the architect. Okay, poll two. What is the main reason you are pursuing, becoming, or became a chartered architect? So, you wanted to design buildings, you wanted to help society, you wanted a good salary, you wanted to teach architecture. From those who voted, it was clear that it wasn't because of monetary reasons, but more for the passion of designing 
To further explore why money wasn't the most attractive factor, I set another poll asking people, what do you believe is a fair salary to pay a newly qualified architect in London and also outside of London? So poll three results, 43% think 40 to 44,000 is right. 35% think 36 to 40,000 is about right. 19% of those who voted, 32 to 36,000. And only 3% think 28 to 32,000 is the right salary for those who have newly qualified in London. So Paul Four asked, what do you believe is a fair salary for newly qualified architects in the UK outside of London. So, 34% said a fair salary is 32 to 36,000. A very close 33% said that 36 to 40,000 plus was a fair salary. And 22% said 28 to 32,000 was okay. And just 11% said 24 to 28,000. A point to note though, is that many who voted were architects themselves. I fully understand that we need doctors, we need lawyers, but architects are the very professionals who design the very hospitals and office that these professionals work in. And yet the people who voted are of the opinion that architects deserve in fact a lower salary. I then wanted to understand further from my followers what they felt was a fair salary to pay at the various stages on the journey to become an architect. So Paul Five, how much do you believe is a fair salary to pay a part one graduate of architecture for their year out? This is outside of London. Okay, 37% of those and there were 230 volts, believe that 23 to 26,000 plus is fair. 36% think 20 to 23,000 is fair. 21% think 17 to 20,000. And actually 6% of those who voted think a fair salary for someone who's got a degree is 14,000 to 17,000. So poll six, how much do you believe is a fair salary to pay part one graduates of architecture for their year out? This is London inside the M25. Only 44 people voted. So 48% think 23 to 26,000. 25% think 20 to 23,000. 7% think 17 to 19,000, but 20% think 26 to 29,000 for a part one is a fair salary. So poll seven, what is a fair salary to pay part two architecture graduates on their year out inside of London prior to part three qualification? We got 158 people voting the majority, 47%, thought 32 to 35,000 
was right for part two. 27% was 29,000 to 32,000. 19% thought 26 to 29,000 was about right. And only 7% thought 23 to 26,000 was fair. So Paul 8, what is a fair salary to pay part two architecture graduate on their year out outside of London prior to part three qualification? We've got 103 people voting. So 50% think 26 to 29,000 is fair. 35% think 29 to 32 is fair. 13% think 23 to 26 is fair and 2% think 20 to 23% sorry 20,000 to 23,000 is fair. Could we as the RIBA do more for our members with a change in focus from communicating better what architects do so the public fully understand their value to society? Perhaps we can. However, Architects must also take responsibility for not communicating better what we do. We must engage with communities in new ways that people understand using social media platforms, for example, not just the reliance on a website. Many architects are engaging with the public through the creation of podcasting and also now YouTube videos. Architects also need to understand that lowering, undercutting other architects' fees is a race to the bottom, where no one benefits in the long term. We need to stand together as a collective. Is part of the problem also that architects enjoy designing buildings so much that their own business mindset is forgotten, meaning we're willing to work for low fees and forget about the business. In my opinion, the teaching of business side of architecture is something that is sadly lacking in most schools of architecture. In fact, the best resource on this subject is found within a recent book by Alan Jones and Rob Hyde. The book called Defining Contemporary Professionalism for Architects in Practice and Education. Many subjects are covered including business, money, marketing, and mentoring for architects. Over a seven year education, much more time and focus needs to be applied to these critical skills in the architectural training so that architects can arm themselves with the ability to survive and leverage their value in the market. This is something I teach through one-to-one -one mentoring. In conclusion, I created this video of the article to communicate to a wider audience. The article was inspired by the many diverse comments I received on the polls to explore whether becoming an architect is still a risk worth taking. My own personal belief is that I love my profession. I love practicing as an architect, but I was lucky enough to get a full grant and my course fees were paid by the taxpayer. Yes, I did have a free education. With the level of debts you may encounter and a low prospect 
of a fair salary compared to other comparable do you believe the risk of becoming an architect is still a risk worth taking i will let you decide Part two, a culture that needs to change. Following the great amount of response to my first article and video, The Broke Architect, I thought I would look deeper into the surrounding factors of mental health, working culture, and the unpaid work of salaried architects in the UK. This year, I also posted an article about an architect, Andrew Donaldson, who sadly ended his life in 2017 by jumping off the Washington Bridge into the Hudson River. Andrew was a salaried architect who worked at Skidmore, Owens and Merrill, and he worked on the Freedom Tower at HLW International in New York City. Following my mentoring of young architects and those in training, I heard of common issues within architecture that most seem to have experienced at different times in their studies. Architect Ben Channon, who is a champion of raising the issues around mental health as the founder of the Architects Mental Wellbeing Forum. He stated in an article in 2019 for online magazine Deezen, sadly, there is still seems to be an embedded culture of late nights and students not being treated with the respect they deserve at many universities. Many other opinions are read in this article relating to the culture of long hours and stress causing burnout. What is sad to see from this article is students complaining that their professors are creating this culture and expecting all nighters as some sort of rite of passage. I wonder how this would play out in a legal sense if this was expected once they were in employment. However, despite these issues, many people want to pursue architecture and universities are full of students studying architecture. So I decided I want to learn more. For my first poll, I set out to investigate the issues around retention and whether students of architecture intended to fully qualify partly qualify, specialise once qualified, or go into teaching architecture. Of 129 who voted, 58% planned to qualify, with 16% intending to quit before qualifying. Now the interesting statistic was that 24% wanted to specialise post-qualification, and many architects do this, However, it's not often communicated by the Royal Institute of British Architects, RIBA. Now I specialised nearly 13 years ago to design nuclear facilities and went client side, but many decided to become developers, design managers and consultants with one of the main drivers being the better salary compared to working in traditional private practice. In 2016, the Architects Journal wrote about research carried out from recruitment firm 9B Careers, finding that architects who remain in private practice for more than 11 years can expect their salaries to peak 
on average at 53,000. In comparison, the research shows that if you go client side, then the average is 84,800. So specializing or becoming an expert in one particular area is a great way to leverage your salary. For my second poll, I explored the extra hours that salaried architects were expected to work unpaid over and above their contracted hours. It found that most architects work at least five to 10 hours extra a week. Okay, so putting this into context, this is between 260 and 520 extra unpaid hours over a year. If you take a salary of 40,000 pounds and an hourly rate of 20 pounds per hour for a 40 hour working week, 48 hours, 48 weeks a year, you will lose between 5,200 and 10,400 a year. Of those who voted, 11% worked 15 to 20 hours. This is extra. It's a staggering 780 hours for 15 hours a week or 1,040 extra hours for 20 hours. To put this in monetary terms on a rate of 20 pound an hour, that is between 15,600 and 20,800 in unpaid work. If you are an architect on a basic salary of 40,000 per year and you regularly work 20 extra hours a week, you're missing out on a wage of 60 grand a year. In the third poll, I asked architects how many extra hours per week they are paid for and above their contracted hours. Of those who voted, 84% stated they were not paid and the rest made up of 16% who worked on average between five and 15 hours. This range of 240 hours extra hours per year for five hours extra a week equates to an additional 4,800 per annum based on 20 pound an hour. And for that small 4% working 15 extra hours paid overtime a week equates to 720 extra hours a year and it can bring in an extra 14,400. So in conclusion, a small fraction of architects who earn an average of 40,000 pound a year for a typical 40 hour working week can earn between 4,800 and 14,400 extra, but only by working longer hours. This only occurs if they work paid overtime between five and 15 hours extra a week. And is this really sustainable? It could be argued that to increase your salary, you have to do long hours, but Paul too suggests that the majority work those additional hours unpaid. Now working on the basis that the polls indicate that many salaried architects are working long hours unpaid, I then tested this theory with Paul Fall and asked the question, what is the most significant cause of mental stress within the profession of architecture? So of those who voted, 64% believe that the most immense mental pressure within the profession is caused by the culture of long hours. However, where does this culture come from? As highlighted earlier, I believe that this begins within education. This is a system where a culture of all-nighters is often expected following the dreaded crits. 
which often create last-minute revisions of students' designs and can involve changing models, drawings and all those final presentations with very little time available. This culture is usually then transferred, transferred to the office working environment where students of architecture are often expected to work long hours under the guise of learning their craft or paying their dues. I personally find this culture akin to modern day slavery and it's a culture that has to stop at its inception even at a university level. The next highest cause of mental stress is related to a lack of money. If you are working long hours and your pay is at a level where you can't fully enjoy what life has to offer, is it any wonder that architects are stressed? In an article featured in Building Design in 2018, Phil Coffey raised the issue of mental health, stating we must stop young architects selling their soul for their careers. After the 9,000 a year fees over five years at university, the salaries are often low when they start work and their hours are long, but architecture is a social profession that should deliver better places to live, work and play for everyone. However, it seems that architects don't get that from themselves. So Phil argues that a lack of business acumen is lacking amongst the architecture students and that architects are seen as commercially naive. The Architects Benevolence Society, ABS, currently pays out in excess of 1 million annually to help more than 500 architectural professionals and their families. Now in the current climate, the pressure on this charity will only increase. I then wanted to explore the negative ways that architects deal with this stress. A look at the ABS website made somber reading. The stories of architects who have experienced mental stress and breakdowns are shared. Now on average, one in 20 members of the wider architectural profession will need to seek help from the ABS at some stage in their lives. So poll five. Results were that most architects, 66%, deal with stress by overeating and having an unhealthy diet. Comfort eating is a common way of masking anxiety. Next came 22% of those who admitted they drank excessively to deal with stress, which is something I've seen both at university and at work in private practice. Next came smoking, and for a tiny percentage, it was illegal substances. So Paul six, this explored the positive ways architects deal with stress, and it was fantastic to see that exercise was the highest option, as this is a proven stress buster. The second stress reducer was regular breaks and taking time out, which has proven results amongst advisors of mental health. And the very act of taking yourself away from a situation and taking a holiday or a mini break is, proving, is proven to result in de-stressing. Now thirdly, people said that talking to others was also a great way to deal with mental stress. For Paul Seven, I then began to wonder, do architects face a negative or positive strategy when dealing with stress? Now from only 51 people actually voted, 
and it was an even spread with 47% saying it was an equal mix of both, positive and negative. Um, positive strategies were an even 47% and 6% only said negative strategies. Now on LinkedIn, I was challenged numerous times to reveal if a positive or negative strategy was more favored. Poll 7 was created to ask this question, but it was inconclusive. However, negative strategies were seen as less common. For my final poll, poll 8, I focused on the mental health challenges of those that studied architecture to understand what mental challenges people face during their time at university. The biggest response by far was from the 49% that voted burnout was their biggest challenge. The culture within architecture seems unhealthy and it really needs fundamental change. This has to begin with the universities and then flow into the working environment. I personally believe that many architects would benefit from joining a union. I myself have seen the benefits over the last 12 years and the good news is that Section of Architectural Workers, SAW, is a union that aims to help the architectural industry. Members of SAW organise both in their workplaces across the sector around overwork, underpay, unstable employment, a toxic workplace and university culture, discrimination and unethical practice. So members facilitate collective casework host training and events, and run campaigns. In addition, there are ways that you can avoid the above pitfalls, and hopefully this is some good news. And this is where I can offer some advice. For the last three years, I have mentored and coached people into success, while also specializing in designing nuclear facilities. Nuclear decommissioning has large capital projects, and compared to other industries, there's little competition in this field compared to the other areas of architecture. Now, architects in my sector add value through in-depth knowledge of designing complex buildings. We are perfectly trained for this and sound design is understood as critical to the safe design. This results in being able to charge a slightly higher premium for such expertise. However, specialising or becoming an expert architect is not the only way we can increase our value. And maybe we can learn from the biggest company on the planet, Apple. In the words of author and marketing guru Donald Miller, Apple likely doesn't make the best computers or phones. That is subjective, of course. Whether Apple has the best technology is debatable, but it doesn't matter. People don't buy the best products. They buy the products they understand the fastest. Apple has increased themselves into the customer story like no other technology company. And as a result, they are the largest company, period. Architects need to understand what their customers want and to make the process of getting what they want as efficient and as simple as possible. This is where the founder of HOKO, H-O-K-O, 
28-year-old Danny Campbell understands clearly. His practice has been described as the Uber of architecture. He has worked to drive out some of the overheads of architecture, the administration, and automate many of the processes. Now, Hoco provides a web-based platform where homeowners select from a range of options. I am not being sponsored by them, by the way. Hoco offers an IKEA-style standard design service, straightforward pricing, and an optional build service. And this has proven so valuable that the practice has secured 400,000 in scale-up funding. And this is just, um, and they've secured 15 projects in a few weeks of going live. Now the practice aims to become the UK's number one residential architecture in a brief period of time. Finally, I just want to share my top seven tips on how you can earn more money as an architect. Number one, find yourself a good mentor with a proven track record and learn from them. Number two, become an expert in your field that is in a non-competitive niche and pays handsomely for it. For example, nuclear, utilities, data center, infrastructure. Number three, become a leader in a large practice. Number four, go into business for yourself as a consultant. Number five, get repeat work from high value clients. Number six, work as part of an in-house capability for a blue chip client. And number seven, become the best at what you do and find someone willing to pay for it. Remember, this is a lifelong journey. So if you would like to know more about life coaching, mentoring, you can contact me on LinkedIn and I'm also now on Clubhouse and also just look at the links below. Thank you. Now I'd just like to say something about the Architects Benevolent Society. This is a society that is dedicated to supporting past and present members of the architectural community and their families in times of need, from those starting out on their careers to those who are now in retirement. They help people who have experienced illness, accident, redundancy, unemployment, bereavement, or other personal difficulties. Now support ranges from confidential advice to financial assistance. Now my um, ask to you all who's listening is consider giving a donation. Um, there's many ways you can do this and you can even volunteer for the ABS and even fundraise. And also you can also leave a gift in your will. So who do the Architects Benevolent Society help? Well, architects, architectural technologists, landscape architects, and employees of architectural practices, but also uh, the dependents of, um, of, of the professions I've just stated there. They also um, help and support students of architecture, architectural technology or landscape architecture. Now for more information on eligibility and to apply for help, please go to the ABS website which is absnet.org.uk thank you please share subscribe and comment to support the channel
architect. 